and welcome to the Distance Learning Roundtable Show on the Incandescent Radio Network. I'm Hope Katz Gibbs, producer of the show and founder of Incandescent PR and Publishing. I am thrilled to be here with the host of the show, Dean Hoke, managing partner of the international firm Edu Alliance, and Pat Casella, executive director of the U.S. Distance Learning Association. Hello, gentlemen. I hope. Good Hello, morning. how are you? Awesome. We know, audience members, that you are going to learn a lot today from our guest, Elliot Massey, the founder of Massey Innovations in Saratota Springs. Pat, I'm going to turn it over to you and Dean to introduce this amazing guest. Joining us today, thank you, Hope. Joining us today is Elliot Massey, the founder of Massey Innovations in Saratoga Springs, New York, focused on how organizations can support learning and knowledge within the workforce. He leads the Learning Collaborative with members including Amazon, Zoom, Bank of America, Subway, The Hartford, and others. He's a regular columnist and author of 12 books, including the ASTD slash Massey Centers Big Learning Data, Learning Pivots, and Empathy. Elliot's professional focus has been on the fields of corporate learning, organizational performance, and emerging technology. He has developed models for accelerating the spread of knowledge, learning, and collaboration throughout organizations. Elliot serves as an advisor to a wide range of government, education, and nonprofit groups, including Department of Defense, and also served on the White House Advisory Council on expanding learning opportunities, as well as a member of the CIA University Board of Visitors. Elliot is also a Tony-nominated Broadway producer. Elliot, known you a long time. Welcome, and we are delighted to have you with us today. Well, it's wonderful to be here, and it's so appropriate we can do it from distance as we are. Yes. Well, Elliot, I think I'll start off with the first question, and this has to do with an interview that I did previously with Peter Wells, who's the chief of higher education over at UNESCO. And he made what I thought was kind of a peculiar statement, but pretty true. And that's the pandemic changed attitudes about online learning in the education community worldwide. He stated during those two years, we took a leap forward of 10 years where teaching and learning online activity was publicly accepted. And he meant this from a worldwide basis. Would you agree with that view? And also give us your thoughts now as we are slowly but surely coming out of the pandemic. It, it certainly did. Uh, you know, I look at when we look at the pandemic, there were three things that changed. Learners changed. Our, our embracement or our use of technology changed. And our models of learning changed. Uh, certainly at the first level, um, you know, I, I imagine literally three years ago, if you had said to 20 people, we're going to have an online meeting, Four or five of them would say, yeah, but I'm not sure, and I don't know how to log on and and, and the like. So uh, I think certainly Zoom played a role uh, in terms of a more simpler you know, user interface and others. And so I think we've gotten to the point where now we are comfortable, whether it be, you know, at a desktop, a laptop, or on our, you know, on our phones, to be able to push connect and, and interact. I think the, the learners have done that. I think our technology also evolved to where we started to do more blending of, of real time and asynchronous that, you know, like we can do, we can do this as a, uh, you know, a real time conversation that we can then curate and harvest and edit into something asynchronous. Wonderful leap forward. Uh, 
I think the one little challenge in all of this has been that uh, we, we got the technology ahead of the methodology so that it, we can just take a look at K-12. I think it's a perfect example. Wow, that we could have students who could be in their homes during this pandemic and they could be connected to their teachers and to their peers. And, you know, we had, we had a, a learning experience happening virtually. What we didn't do is we never thought about how do we prepare A, our teachers for that, or even how do we prepare our content for it? So one of the things that happened in the K-12 space is a lot of our kids got exhausted. Just, you know, how many hours do you want to just be online? And we didn't have a lot of pre-made content. My fantasy, if we can go back, is that we would have gotten a few courses and had Steven Spielberg as the director to produce elements and then use our teachers for the mediation, the moderation, the facilitation, and, and, and the like. And the only other thing I think we come out of this with a degree of, of need to define is what's the algorithm for when we use virtual when we use face-to-face, -face, when we do something that people might call hybrid and the like. And so I think, uh, yes, I validate what he's saying. And as we look forward, I think now we need to look at how do we evolve our learners, our presenters, and our developers. Very good. Continuing on that, Elliot, it appears that you know expectations have certainly changed since the pandemic, right? Both for the learner and for the instructor. Can you first discuss how the learner has changed and then maybe tie it into the challenges that there are for the instructor? I think the learner is wanting to learn, but they aren't necessarily wanting to be a student, which is an interesting element of it. They're wanting to be engaged. They're wanting to uh, be involved. They're wanting to, in many cases, be able to be interactive. Uh, they're wanting to do a project. Um, they're not necessarily wanting to sit and learn in that, or, or, or sit and be a student in that learning mode. Uh, I would define it in a most positive sense is that our learners are more self-engineering their own virtual learning. They feel like they, they have something in front of them. I also think that our learners are evolving. How do we optimize a virtual event? So, so we could, let's take this model as an example. So Dean or Pat or Hope are going to say something really interesting. How does the person watching this annotate it? Like, you know, I really can't take my yellow marker and, you know, mark over, you know, Dean's face or something like that to highlight that. So what we, what we need to do now is to better understand how learners can curate content that's virtual, how they can integrate that. Uh, I, I have this great hope that someday there'll be a third button on my mouse called later. You know, if I get something, I can click the later button. So it it curates it for, for later. And then the final piece, which I think is a really interesting one, is um, how do we deal with the real reality that we never meant back when e-learning started as a term, we never meant for the E in e-learning to mean a lonely learner. We actually thought that it would actually increase participation, increase engagement. And I think it certainly can vector towards that. But in many situations, people have learned to dump or publish 
a horde of content at the learners. And when I do interviews with, with learners in, in different workplaces, they're saying, well, it was okay, but I really wanted to talk to a peer about that. And so we've got to do a better job of how do we build, even in a virtual world, the uh, cognitive rehearsal, the, the conversational dimension around content that's been delivered virtually. But yo, I think the learners have moved far ahead. Our only thing we do need to keep in mind is uh, in some situations, people aren't sharing bread or air, and sometimes that keeps them less Velcroed into the organizations that they are in. And I have a friend, and I had lunch with him yesterday. He's a, a music professor at Skidmore College, and he said, uh, coming through the pandemic, his two observations, some of the freshmen seem a year or two younger than they used to seem at that age because they didn't have the same social engagement. And many of them literally are in class for a, a music class that's very involved with their laptops open and their heads in their laptops. So we've got to think about how do we make learning technology organic? You feel it if you see a grandmother or a grandfather talking to their kids on FaceTime, it's very, they call somebody over, they take a picture. I'm not sure we have that same agility that our learners in the workplace or even in the in the education institution space have. So we've got work to do in the, in this world. Yeah, really, really is uh, interesting. Uh, how about for the instructors? You know, the learners are certainly challenged. How about, how about for these instructors? You know, what are the challenges they're they're seeing? Well, so, you know, some of them start from literally, you know, you got to get the lights right. You know, um, you got to end up being comfortable looking at yourself. I go way back to, I was on an, an advisor to picture tell decades ago. And I remember we had this big conversation with picture tell and Cisco about whether or not the learner should see their own view. And my friends at Cisco said, no, because you ought to feel like you're there and you're looking at, and my friends at Polycom said, you want to see it because you want to make sure how you look in all of that. So we've got to get a self-confidence about it. And, and there's a, a skill to that. We also have to be different at storytelling. There's a, a pacing for uh, talking or telling a story like I am right now of when do we do a pause? When do we do silence? When do I speed it up and move? Like th there's, there's a shift in storytelling when I'm doing that in a virtual environment. And the final piece, which is something we don't have yet, but the technology is moving there. How do we sense and pulse the audience? We certainly know, all of us have led uh, sessions and small and large learning things. We know how to look around and we see, sure enough, you know, in the third row, Pat is there and Pat just looks like they're totally confused. Or in the back, you've got, you know, Ivan, who's jumping up and down. And, and and how do we map and engage that? But if, in fact, I see 20 people on a WebEx or on a Microsoft Teams piece, how do I pulse that? And there's, I know Microsoft, their folks are in, in, in their Teams area are doing a lot around how can we use technology like AI and machine learning to be able to give keys back to how our, how our people are engaged and when do we need to side chat. The final piece, and it's not done as much as it could be, I'm pushing this in the corporate world, is to have a co-facilitator 
on a virtual event or even on a hybrid event who isn't a content person, but is a touch-based person. So literally, if suddenly somebody seemed really confused or even raised their hand, that person could do a side chat with somebody to check in with them and to engage with them. So I think there's a lot of new learning skills that, you know, I think over the decades of what we've talked about at USDLA and the like, there, there's a whole new set of skills. And that's even way before we get to this thing of when somebody puts on, you know, a meta or augmented goggle, but even just with what we're doing, there's a, a corollary skill set there. I'd like to kind of change geography a little bit. The experience of what happened in the United States and North America and some parts of Europe seem to be different and maybe because of experience or whatever the case may be, than let's say in the Middle East and Africa and other places. And while they adapted, at the same time, they haven't bought in in a lot of places. Mm -hmm. And that concerns me. I mean, I did watch the turnaround. It was 30 days or less in a lot of cases for hundreds of thousands of students. And they seem to kind of be going back in some places in their old ways. You're the guru. You're you're the person that's been at this for a long time and well-respected. What would you tell government officials, ministries, about online learning and why they should continue down this process? I, I think we've got to view it in, in an interesting way, Dean. You know, even though Wikipedia says I helped start the term e-learning, and there were so many of us who've been worked in, in right. this for so long. It's a, It's been really joint collaboration. But we've got to figure out, in a way, how to get out of the uh, the siloed model of online versus face-to-face. I actually view that we're in a deal going forward in a matrix of delivery, you know, and that matrix may literally be a when are we in a one-to-many video environment? When do we then shift that? into a, uh, you know, a Slack team or other chat environment. When do I want, and we haven't, I haven't seen this done extremely well. When do we build new models for office hours? I mean, you certainly know in a university mode that, that some of the best learning happens when that student comes to the office who says, I just didn't get what you said about, you know, binary delegation and, and, and there's a dialogue. And then when do we allow content to be broken into some smaller chunks? Uh, you know, I, I recently ATD published an article, I, I, a chapter I wrote in a book this thick, and it's a wonderful book. I've got it in my bookshelf. But nobody, nobody under the age of 25 is going to buy that book. You know, and, and, I mean, they, it's a good piece. I'm glad we did it. But we're going to have to play with formats and where the answer, I think, and I've had conversations with colleagues in Rwanda and South America and the like, uh, they've got to go beyond binary. It's not all one way or all the other. It is how do you mix and match that? Now, once again, I think we've done a better job on the phone than we have in our other technology. You know, I can go to Rwanda and pay for uh, something at a market with, with, a digital payment using my phone or the like. So, um, and, and I think they've got to make it some degree of interactive. Uh, and that's really been, uh, how shall I say, it's been the worry in some 
uh, some org some companies that they really want to broadcast and they really don't want a chat going and they didn't really want to get some large elements of that. Uh, if I gave if I gave you one interesting indicator of where the vector may come, it's as we see folks in other institutions use our technology. You know, I'm in Broadway now. A lot of the big big artists are figuring out how do we do something that's virtual and interactive. What are religions doing with this stuff? Uh, how are we dealing in the role of learning in healthcare? So I actually think all of these different sectors are going to use what we do differently, and they won't necessarily call it learning or distance learning or the like. It's going to be part of their matrix of engagement. Um, and, and culturally, will be different. Huge conversation with my colleagues uh, in Dubai about, you know, uh, should a woman be allowed to be in a physical class? And in, in some parts of that world, women are in different classes or isolated. But what about being on, you know, a, a, a multi-point grid or, or is, is, is there inappropriate exposure from their religious or moral? point of view. So I think we can see a lot of global innovation with this. Just as I go way back, I'm, you know, not a youngster in this field. I remember when ICQ came out of the Russian Jewish scientists who went to Israel and figured out a way for people in tanks to talk to each other. And that was ICQ and what became SMS text messaging. So you got to you got to believe that it's it evolves. You know, we're we're going to evolve globally, and it may not be driven by first world white, um, you know, industrial places. Actually, you know, a, a fintech has really come out more of the third world than it did in in the first world. So I think there's a parallel in in learning here too. This is great. I mean, for me, it's, it's really interesting because, Elliot, I saw you present, you know, back with USDLA and myself. I've known you for almost 15 years now. And uh, you're certainly considered one of the greatest advocates and leaders in the field of, of e-learning since the beginning. Um, but what has surprised you the most um, as we sit here today? If we look back, you know, 15 years ago, did you think it was going to go this way? You know, did it go according to plan? Yeah. And, uh, you know, what do you think the next big thing is going to be? But let's take that first one. Did you think yeah. it was really going to turn out like this? Uh, I sort of did. But I, you know, it, it remember, it, it much came together prior to the Internet. OK, as we started to think about ISDN lines and, and the like. And then we were looking at Internet, two and things. And then the Internet came and, whoop, you know, uh, I didn't believe that we we're going to get as many different platforms, you know, and even to this day, uh, I go back to, I remember when I met my wife and we were starting to date and she was a John Hancock. And uh, this was the early days of email. And she had an X25 email address that was 197 characters to get to that. And eventually we figured out we actually need a singular way to send email. We don't have a singular way to do this. You know, we've got to do it on a platform. We've got to do it on, you know, WebEx or on Zoom or on Teams or on another one. I'm waiting for when we could come in from whatever platform we're in and we aggregate 
in in something. So we're early in that sense. We don't yet have that element. I also think, and this has been an intriguing one, that we focus too much on our faces. Um, you know, I'm, I'm glad to have this. I don't have yet a good way that you can have my face over here. And over in another box uh, is an object that I can touch and move. And over in another box, I can give you a, uh, a simulation to do. So we're going to have to integrate uh, interactivity and simulation and assessment technologically and then in a design sense in, in that. The one big thing that I am just uh, hoping happens soon is that we also realize that we can have a lot of fun when we do that. You know, so being a Broadway producer uh, and from early on, I often start by playing some music or by bringing in a piece of video. We got to get more agile. I wish we had a simple way to have a set of icons that a presenter could dot out and, you know, and, and do that. All of it is coming. And we were able to help Zoom early on realize they needed to augment the audio engineering on Zoom because we had Broadway stars trying to sing from their homes and their audio codec wasn't able to handle music and a voice. And I talked to the people at Zoom and bluntly about a week later, they, they came up with a, an enhancement all across their, their platform for that. So there's, there's stuff coming up in that sense. I'd kind of like to go down the path a little bit of what you just talked about, and that's Broadway. Uh, I know some people know that you've been in Broadway actually for a number of years. Yep. Yeah. A lot of people don't know this. And I think even when we were talking earlier, I'm going, so are you a frustrated actor? I mean, is this, how did you get into all this? Yeah. And probably the real question that I have is what, have you learned what did you bring from online to broadway and what does broadway brought to online is there some things well we're very honored uh my wife and i run Maisie productions and we're a broadway uh a broadway producer and originator uh and we now are tony nominated and we produce 34 broadway shows including kinky boots and you know, spongebob and a number of other uh, other shows and we just opened piano lesson and august wilson drama in, in New York. Um, what brought me into it, Dean, is the commonality of not entertainment, but storytelling. At the end of the day, my background was as a storytelling person. And I wanted to great, have great storytelling when I did train the trainer on how to run a classroom. And then even more excited of how do we do storytelling in, in a range of distance learning pieces. And then when I, I went to Broadway that I always loved, I'm not an actor. I actually ran the lights in high school. Uh, but when I would go to see a Broadway show, I realized that the producers of that were similar to what we did. We don't call ourselves producers. We might call ourselves instructional designers or the like, but we were both in the same business taking a story and making it in a way that it was engaging, involving, impactful, and it moved the people that were there. So that's what got me involved. Uh, and we've done, as I said, uh, 34 shows. What I've There's been a, a learning for me in both directions. Uh, what I've learned from Broadway that I've brought into the world of learning 
is you've got to have a story arc for everything that you do. You know, probably the best good example is the way Chris runs the TED Talks. You know, they're 18 minutes and they don't start with, here's what I'm going to tell you and here's what I told you. They build a story arc in that sense. And you can't use traditional PowerPoint if when you're doing a, a TED Talk. You've got to use uh, involving icons. Uh, I believe we need to bring that sense of great storytelling into that. Another thing I've learned, which I think is really important, is what the role of rehearsal is. You know, when you go to see a show, if you go to see Lion King and you see those, those amazing characters walking through the aisle, that probably reflects 250 hours of rehearsal. Well, when was the last time you went to a learning event and the instructor did 250 hours of, of, of rehearsal? Uh, what flips back in the other direction that for what I know in learning that I've brought into Broadway is that um, people don't want to have a singular experience. So uh, if you go to see a show, we're doing more and more now to give people stories beforehand, to understand where it came from, to do stuff afterwards, to, uh, to drill down and see the context of that. So for me, they're, they're hyper-connected, the, the two things. Uh, I will tell you that you can lose money faster on Broadway than you can if you're an entrepreneur <laughs> in learning, but, but close in that sense. Uh, and the other piece, which is, is, is probably better, is Broadway knows when the show runs too long because people walk out. I'm not sure we always recognize in the learning world that we're not moderating or mediating duration based on attention in that sense. Yeah, absolutely. So, Ellie, in, in preparing for this, you know, I listened to several of your interviews. Uh, in particular, there was uh, one question that kind of struck me. What advice would you give to your 21-year-old self? Can you speak to that question for the audience today? Well, I think the interesting thing I would give to my 21-year-old uh, self is to have this interesting duality of worldview. Hmm. You know, what's exciting about a 21-year-old is the future's ahead of her. You know, she's looking forward. The mistake we can make is that that happens without understanding history and recognizing and learning of where we've come from, what the past is. Um, I think that the most powerful uh, ventures that I've seen are not populated with just a whole bunch of venture-hungry 22-year-olds. You know, uh, I remember when Google decided to hire Eric Schmidt, whose primary functionality was he had some gray hair. And, uh, you know, and obviously he had run Novell and, and, and other big organizations. I, I think that that 21-year-old who's at the cusp of, of helping to change the world has to understand the history. You know, even in our world of learning, how many people have read Dewey? You know, how many people have gone back and understood, you know, way, way back when we had some of our early uh, distance learning uh, things, trying to understand do, what do we, why do we call one thing, you know, in, in near side, far side and, and, and the like? Uh, what do we know going back about cognitive research? Because that 21-year-old, I want to get real excited about what we're now learning in brain science. But, but I want that layered in 
to what we've known and what we've assumed in in that sense. And finally, um, break out of your cohort. I actually think the most exciting uh, work, collaboration, even theater pieces are when you do it. I, I'm the producer of Allegiance, a wonderful Broadway show about uh, the Japanese internment, internment of Japanese Americans during World War II. Well, one of the stars there is George Takei, who's 85 years old, okay? And one of my other stars is Telly, who was from the Glee uh, TV show. It's the bringing together of generations into a commonality that is what's really exciting. And I think we've got to open that, that door up more. I think parents ought to be pushing their students to have more interactions with relatives and family friends and others to, to grow up in a multi-generational environment. That would be yeah. my message back to myself. Yeah. You hit it, right? Youth is wasted on the young, as they say sometimes, right? And uh, yeah, I, I think about it myself, you know, here we are at, at the ages that we are and, and the, you have to you have to look back on history to move forward. Totally, totally true. Dean, how about some closing remarks here? Well, Hope, I'm going to let you finish this up. All right. Well, this was amazing, gentlemen. Thank you so much for, you know, sharing all this stuff. Elliot, wow, the founder of e-learning, coining that phrase and all of your amazing work. Thank you for that and for sharing your thoughts and ideas with us today. Gentlemen, what a wonderful show. This is episode two of the Distance Learning Roundtable, where we're going to bring tons of experts in to talk about the future of e-learning, learning online and around the world. So thank you, Pat Casella, Executive Director, what's your title? Executive Director of the U.S. Distance Learning Association, and Dean Hoke, the Managing Partner of Edu Alliance. So this is just a wonderful episode, and we know people are going to walk away with a ton of new information and food for thought. And of course, Elliot, we will be bringing you back to see where we are, maybe in a year from now. So I'm Kat Gibbs, founder of Incandescent Radio and Incandescent TV, and also proud to be the communications director for the U.S. Distance Learning Association, a total honor. So thank you to our audience. We will talk to you soon. Have a wonderful day. Thank you all. Bye.